You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are bringing back a guest that we've had on previously to talk about a topic that we get asked about probably hundreds of times every single week, gluten. So buckle up. We're going to dive in. What is gluten? What it isn't? Some factoids about gluten allergies, our sensitivities real. So we're going to go there. We have lots of questions that we're going to get through in this episode. Before we get to that, just briefly, if you haven't listened to our previous episode before Thanksgiving, we tackled tryptophan. It was inspired by the very common claim that eating turkey on Thanksgiving makes us sleepy due to the amount of tryptophan in turkey. So if you haven't already listened, definitely go back and check that out. And of course, we hope that you all had a very happy and healthy Thanksgiving with your loved ones. So let's get into it. Let's introduce Dr. Dave Stukas. Dr. Stukas is a a professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the director of their Food Allergy Treatment Center. His career focuses on medical education and dissemination of best clinical practices. He is heavily involved in social media. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at AllergyKidsDoc. And of course, we'll tag him. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back. It's great to speak with you. And uh, we're going to talk about the horrors of gluten. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so before we hit record, we were sort of bantering about how you go to the grocery store and literally everything now has a label of gluten-free even things that are naturally gluten-free, right? Things like water or fresh produce. So this is definitely all the rage right now. So Andrea, do you want to kick things off maybe with some microbiome information? So let's just start with what is gluten. So gluten is a structural protein that is naturally found in certain cereal grains. Typically, gluten from a scientific context refers to wheat proteins. In clinical literature, It often refers to combinations of two different proteins, prolamin and glutalin, which are naturally occurring in in all grains that can trigger celiac disease. And we'll talk a lot more about celiac disease in a minute. But these are going to include species of wheat, including your common wheat, durum, spelt, horasin, or sometimes people call it, pronounce it horasin, emmer, and einkorn. It's also going to be found in barley, rye, certain oat species, and of course, hybrids of all of these. Gluten as a protein makes up about 75 to 85% of the total protein content in bread wheat. Now, To be clear, gluten is not found in grains such as amaranth, arrowroot, buckwheat, buckwheat, although it has the word wheat in it, it's not a wheat, corn and corn products, rice, wild rice, flax, quinoa, soy, sorghum, tapioca, which is derived from cassava root, teff, 
potatoes, legumes, beans, seeds, nuts, fruits, and veggies, and, and more. Of course, you're probably going to see gluten-free on, on products that include these things that normally never have gluten to begin with. It's a similar phenomenon as what we see with our non-GMO being on things like salt, which don't have genes to modify to begin with. So super briefly, let's just talk about labeling since we do see this label everywhere. So there is no requirement that gluten-free foods must be labeled gluten-free, but any product conforming to the FDA standard, and I'll talk about that in just a second, may be labeled as gluten-free, even if it is naturally gluten-free. Again, giving the example of water or fresh produce. So the FDA specifies, among other criteria, that any foods that carry the label gluten-free, no gluten, free of gluten, or without gluten must contain less than 20 parts per million ppm of gluten. So why all the hype around gluten? Dave, I'm sure you have a lot to say here, but well, you know, do do you hear a lot about gluten in your practice? (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. All the time. Um, And, you know, it's, I I like to ask really simple questions and see where that leads me. And I have so many parents that bring in their children and they they say just sort of nonchalantly, oh, well, of course we're gluten-free. To which I ask the the really hard question, why? Uh, And then a lot of times people can't even articulate why they they decided to go gluten-free for their child. Sometimes it's some hodgepodge of pseudoscientific terms like inflammation or microbiome or who knows what. But more often than not, they actually can't even tell me why they decided to, you know, try to remove gluten from their child's diet. So I just think it's important for people to kind of pause and think about why, you know, gluten has been turning this evil term and word. Uh, And I, I kind of feel bad for gluten, to be honest with you, because it really didn't seem like it posed that much of a problem until about a decade ago. And now it's a, it's a billion dollar industry to make everything gluten free. So Dave, maybe you can kind of summarize, you know, where is gluten actually implicated in health related issues? Yeah. That, you know, we're going to talk a lot about that. I think it's important that the, the gluten free sort of industry has been uh, very, very helpful for those who truly need to avoid gluten for medical reasons. And traditionally speaking, that's for folks who have celiac disease, which is about 1% of the population. And these individuals really need need to avoid gluten because ingestion of it causes an autoimmune response inside their body, which can make them very, very sick. Separate from that, there are those who have actual wheat allergy, and that you know traditionally is caused by this IgE antibody. And whenever they eat wheat products, they, they can exhibit any form of you know big red itchy hives or swelling, vomiting, anaphylaxis, and they need to avoid wheat and gluten for those reasons as well. And then other than that, there's a few other conditions we can talk about, but you know the vast majority of people really don't need to avoid gluten from a medical standpoint. And to refresh our our listeners' memory, we talked a little bit about celiac disease during our autoimmune diet episode. And so autoimmune disorders are medical issues where your immune system recognizes a normally benign molecule as essentially foreign, and and it creates a response where your immune system starts to attack your own body cells. And so in the case of celiac disease, this is triggered by your T cells reacting to gluten molecules found in your digestive tract in your small intestine, and it leads to an actual inflammatory process, which can be very dangerous. And it's not an allergy, which I think, Dave, you already pointed out, but but there can be wheat allergies. And we actually did a post recently about 
I can't even remember the topic, but someone said, oh, well, well, I'm allergic to this substance. So you're saying that it's not harmful. And anybody can be allergic to anything in theory. And so, you know, if you're allergic, obviously you avoid that thing. If you're not allergic, it doesn't it doesn't pose a threat to the general population. Dave, can you maybe walk us through, you know, we also hear a lot about these sensitivities or the non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and they claim that, you know, they have these gastrointestinal symptoms or they're, they have brain fog or what do they call it, um, sugar brain or something like that. And how would you actually go about diagnosing someone with celiac disease, which is the actual autoimmune disorder that would require you to avoid gluten? This is a very, very important point for your listeners of one, self-diagnosis is filled with improper and incorrect diagnosis. There's a lot of folks who who believe they have certain conditions based upon either things they've been told by sometimes medical professionals or things they read online, but they may have other conditions that warrant investigation and treatment, or they may delay a diagnosis if they self-diagnose. So I really uh, strongly recommend go talk to your personal doctor or allergist if you have any concerns about this, because we do have very, very accurate ways to diagnose things like celiac disease as well as you know food allergies. So with celiac disease, Uh, There are blood tests available that really test for these autoantibodies that people can form that attack their own tissues. But the gold standard is to actually take a camera and go all the way into the small intestine and you take a little piece of a biopsy of tissue and you're looking for specific changes that are consistent with celiac disease, which is blunting of these villi. These villi are like little tiny microscopic structures that absorb nutrients. But it's really important that people need to be eating gluten while they undergo the endoscopy because if you take gluten out of your diet, the body can actually repair itself and those changes may not be there. So all always talk to your doctor first to decide if you need to go that route. When it comes to things like wheat allergy, we have allergy testing available. There's really three different ways that we test for this IgE antibody. One way in the office, we do something called a skin prick test, where you place drops of liquid allergen on the back or on the forearm. Sometimes we gently scratch through the top layer of the skin. If that individual has IgE antibody towards that food protein, within 15 minutes, they're going to release histamine and cause a hive. And then the size of the bump and the the redness indicates the likelihood that allergy is present. We can measure levels of the IgE antibody in the blood just by doing a routine blood test and see what those levels look like. Both of these tests are very reliable when we have negative results. We do get a lot of false positives. So we have to do them you know, according to the clinical history. And then really the best test is what happens when you eat it. So when the history is sort of indeterminate or our testing is indeterminate, come on in for an oral food challenge where we actually have you safely ingest small amounts of it uh, under observation. And then if no objective symptoms occur, then it's very unlikely that you have a true allergy to that. And then lastly, we have these conditions called food sensitivities or intolerances, where we don't have really good tests to diagnose this. There is this entity known as non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which, you know, it's questionable because we don't have a confirmatory diagnosis. It's questionable as to how many people actually have this. To give you a sense, about 1% of the population has celiac, about 1% to 2% have wheat allergy. We really don't know how many people truly have a, a sensitivity or intolerance, but this would be difficulty with digestion. And the story is typically when I'm eating this specific food, I have variable gastrointestinal symptoms such as bloating, cramping, sometimes diarrhea, constipation. The only real way to tell if it's a specific food is to take that food out of your diet for a period of two to four weeks. Those symptoms should resolve. And then you need to eat the food again to see if those symptoms come back. So a lot of folks who sort of uh, adopt gluten-free diets adopt them for a variety of reasons that aren't due to anything we just talked about. And then they start to sort of vaguely feel better, but they never take that next step to actually start you know, putting gluten back in their diet to see if symptoms come back again. 
again, because there are often other causes for their symptoms. You bring up a great point. We kind of talked about this concept of the elimination diet during the autoimmune protocol episode, where a lot of people kind of focus on the elimination phase and they don't actually do any of the reintroduction. And of course, you know, this should all be supervised by their physician team to begin with, but you can't isolate a single molecule, right? You can't just extract Mm -hmm. gluten and say, oh, well, I feel better because I took only gluten out of my diet and and then I I reintroduced just gluten. There's lots of other things in food products and and many people who are, you know, adopting these gluten-free diets are also changing a lot of other lifestyle patterns, right? They're starting to exercise more because they feel crummy or they're being more cognizant about processed foods in general, or they're drinking more fluids. And, you know, and so it's a lot of these confounding variables that may impact their subjective perception of how they feel. I wonder if maybe you can kind of dig in a little bit more about this concept of people claiming they cut out gluten and they feel better Mm -hmm. or they feel less bloated. and, And maybe some of like, biases, whether conscious or unconscious, can influence that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So our our minds are very, very powerful and they absolutely can influence the way that we not only feel physically, but how we perceive symptoms that we have for a variety of reasons. There's a couple analogies I like to use. One is whenever we get colds, and right now there's a a lot of folks with RSV and rhinovirus and other viral infections, you know, when when it's really cold and cloudy outside and you're stuck inside the house, it makes you feel pretty miserable. But many of us have also had those same colds when we're on vacation in a tropical location or something like that. And more often than not, we don't let those colds, you know, keep us back. We're not going to hole up in the room and, you know, shut up in blankets and stuff like that. We kind of power through it. So it's all about the mindset and you have the same symptoms, but in different areas. And then, you know, the placebo effect and nocebo effect are very powerful. So we know placebo can positively impact about 30% of people, which is basically we give you an inert substance like a sugar pill or something like that uh, to treat your symptoms. I'm using treat with air quotes. And then 30% of people just naturally feel better, uh, even though they're not actually getting any treatment for it. Nocebo effect is basically the opposite. We take something away and about 30% of people can feel better as well. So as you mentioned, a lot of people will attribute specific molecules like gluten to the way that they feel, whether it's fatigue or they feel sluggish or they feel bloating or things like that. And it's really hard to just remove that from your diet. But when they do adopt this gluten-free diet, a lot of those subjective symptoms will improve, whether or not it's because of the the gluten or not. And it's because they're invested in this. And from a cognitive bias standpoint, they've bought in and they say, well, I'm going gluten-free, therefore I'm going to feel better. And then they start to generally feel better and they, they say it's all because of the gluten. Whereas, as you mentioned, it could be because they're just paying more attention to their overall health and they're eating overall more fruits and vegetables, healthier foods, less processed foods. They're exercising more, they're drinking less alcohol, things like that. So there's a lot to kind of unpack there, but those are some of the general ways that you know people can be impacted by this. Dave, very important question. Is there a dog in the background? Because <laughs> I want to see a picture of it. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I am so sorry. Oh, don't be. <laughs> yeah. No, don't be. Yeah, that's our, our nine-month-old Corgi Apollo who uh, is, hold, is hold up with Stop. me right now. And, yeah. Oh, my God. I have four dogs and one – actually, I just adopted a puppy, too, who's probably going to be barking any minute. So, no, please do not apologize. <laughs> Second very important comment is I'm sure that listeners are appreciating the way that Andrea pronounces gluten, which is my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> Andrea had to say say it. All right. One question, Andrea, I know that there's a lot that we want to say here, but Dave and Andrea, you know, 
Are there any benefits to cutting out gluten if you don't have one of these diagnosable conditions that you reference? Are there any benefits to cutting out gluten? Not really. And there's been great, you know, systematic analyses and reviews, and people have looked at this. Um, you know, gluten by itself is not an evil food. It doesn't cause bad things inside your body unless you have one of these medical conditions. And there's a lot of, you know, common mistakes too. People will say sometimes they adopt a gluten-free diet because they want to lose weight. That's not going to happen. In fact, people tend to gain weight when they adopt gluten-free diets for a variety of reasons. So no, that's my answer is you know, there's really no medical reason to do so unless you have one of these diagnoses. I'm going to echo that, of course. You know, Dave is the clinical immunologist, but from a you know research side of things, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of products that are marketed as gluten-free, you know, you're omitting very important nutrients. Uh, a lot of bread and wheat products are high in fiber. They have important vitamins and minerals. They also have protein. I mean, gluten is a protein, right? We're, we're ignoring protein. Um, other sorts of micromolecules that are very beneficial. Um, but on top of that, there's also a psychological component, right? It can lead to disordered eating, avoidance of social activities. If like someone's going out to a restaurant and there's no gluten-free options and people kind of get into the psychological cycle of almost like analysis paralysis, right? They, they, mm-hmm. They're afraid of doing anything or, or behaving in any sort of social setting because they're afraid they're going to be exposed to this molecule that in reality poses no risk to them. I mean, of course, you know, there's there's obviously the the inherent risks of malnutrition. If if you're omitting large swaths of food groups, if you don't need to, you may be deficient in certain nutrients as well. Yeah, I, I love that you pointed that out because we're seeing, we're increasingly recognizing the um, the um, the powerful impact that this can have on people's overall well-being. Of they're just infatuated with lists of ingredients and you know places, you know, can I eat here? Can I not eat there? Friends invite them out. And they, they decline these invitations because they're afraid they won't be able to find something that they can eat, even though they don't actually need to avoid these foods in the first place. So that's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Andrew, you used another very important term, marketing, right? <laughs> People need to, re- to remember that. You know, again, we're not talking about folks who, who genuinely have an allergy to, to gluten and, and cannot eat it. We know, we see that this is truly an industry. And I did a, a search and I see that the global gluten-free product market market size is valued at around $6 billion in 2021 and is growing exponentially. We'll have to share this graph that shows it's growing something like 10% annually. So this is an industry. And so when we have conversations like this, you know, Andrea, I love to give this disclaimer. We're not judging you if you are, you know, gluten-free because there's so much buzz around this. And the fact that so much is marketed as gluten-free, it's, not surprising that a lot of people feel that this is something that they should be avoiding. Our goal with this is to present you with clinical perspective, scientific perspective on what is a legitimate gluten allergy. And as the experts have weighed in, there is no benefit to avoiding gluten if you do not have a a diagnosed gluten allergy. I want to kind of expand this to other conditions. So, you know, Dave, as, as you reiterated and mentioned, you know, the two main reasons, medical issues that you would avoid gluten gluten would be if you have celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder that is elicited by exposure to gluten that leads to inflammatory damage to the small intestinal structures. And then there's also true wheat allergies, which again, are an allergy that's mediated by those IgE antibodies and histamine production and so on and so forth. So you search online and, you know, you kind of search for, you know, autoimmune and gluten and all these news articles or, you know, 
blog posts or things like that come up and they're touting the benefits of a gluten-free diet, even if you have an unrelated autoimmune disorder or some other inflammatory condition. And they say, oh, well, avoiding gluten is good because it reduces inflammation and it prevents the alteration of microbiome and things like that. So I really want to dig into that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I want I want you to talk a little bit about the implications of gluten with other autoimmune disorders. But I want to quickly remind everybody that autoimmune disorders currently encompass about 80 different conditions. Many of them are genetic in nature. Some are related to past viral infections um, and other can be exacerbated by various environmental factors as well as something called epigenetics, which we're probably going to talk about on a future episode. But they're they're vastly different, right? One example of an autoimmune disorder is type 1 diabetes, which leads to your body, your immune system attacking the pancreatic islet cells, which lead you to be unable to produce insulin. Another one could be vitiligo, which attacks the pigment cells in your skin that are called melanocytes, and those lead to patches of skin discoloration. And something like celiac disease is an autoimmune disorder that's basically mediated on your small intestine. Cells. So you can't lump all these into the same category and then say, well, this one protein molecule, gluten, is going to somehow alleviate symptoms of all of them. Yeah. All right. A couple couple very big key concepts I think that we need to address. One is pseudoscience, which is basically the use of scientific terminology in uh, made-up ways. <laughs> what, what I mean by that specific to gluten is celiac disease can absolutely cause um, arthritis and uh, skin rashes and gastrointestinal symptoms, and it can cause this, this phenomenon known as brain fog. But if you do not have celiac disease, then uh, gluten really shouldn't be causing those same symptoms. But that doesn't stop people from extrapolating that to saying, oh, have you ever had you know, a poor night's sleep, or did you ever have a hard time finding that word you're looking for? Or, you know, did you ever get itchy? This could all be because of gluten. So basically the extrapolation to a bunch of conditions for which there's no evidence to support it, that's a huge problem because that's being done by actual medical professionals, which leads me to number two. Uh, We have the Dunning-Kruger effect, which I know you've talked about. So the (laughs) Dunning-Kruger effect is basically, you know, the less expertise or information somebody knows, they have more confidence in spouting it. So this is where we get into chiropractors and naturopaths and homeopaths and alternative medicine practitioners all recommend recommending, you know, gluten-free diets or, or alterations to the microbiome. So they combine, basically, they're, they're not experts in these things, but yet they're recommending it because it's something that they can offer you. And, and people want something to do. They want answers for what ails them. Uh, and that's what they're being offered here. And then back to the, what you mentioned before, the marketing aspect of it. And if you look online, there are, you know, actual MDs and true experts out there that are, are making millions of dollars selling their books and products and services because they're blaming everything on gluten and people are buying into it. So I, I think there's people need to proceed with caution when it comes to this. And again, as um, was mentioned, we're not saying, you know, if you need to avoid it, by all means, that's do that, but do so under the direction of a trained medical specialist. So for those of you out there wondering, should I adopt a gluten-free diet? I would say, you know, what's that conversation with your doctor entail? What what have they recommended and why? What have they actually diagnosed you with? Uh, And I would start there. Yeah, that's a great point, Dave. And I, and I think, you know, I really want to quickly touch on this concept of inflammation. And we did, we, we have Mm -hmm. talked about this at length. And then I want to move into this the, the microbiome because these often get conflated, right? And so inflammation and microbiome, two terms that do have meaning in the world of science and medicine, but get co-opted for this pseudoscience that, that you just talked about. And, you know, inflammation is a natural required process in our body. And in reality, every time and anytime we eat anything, our body is digesting those foods into macromolecules, which are 
broken down into usable energy. So in the world of biochemistry, calories don't exist. Calorie is not an energy source. We use a molecule called ATP. And so we break down proteins like gluten and fats and carbohydrates and all sorts of molecules into this usable energy source. And this gets shuttled into our cellular respiration pathway, which is basically how our cells make energy from things we consume. And during this process, inflammation has occurred because inflammation is basically anything that's creating byproducts. It's catabolic processes. So you generate molecules called free radicals or reactive oxygen species. And and these are critical. We can't eliminate them because we need those molecules for physiological processes in our body to produce cell membranes and produce new proteins and all sorts. And But we also don't want to produce too many of them. And so you have this balance, right, in our body at all times. It's called homeostasis. And our body's really good at regulating that. We don't have to try and mess with it. We don't have to try and reduce our inflammation on the whole. And again, it's a term that's been co-opted by a lot of these companies who are selling supplements, who are selling products, and they claim, oh, well, this substance is going to reduce your inflammation. But in reality, things are always pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory at the time when they need to be. When we talk about inflammation in the context of the immune system, you know, inflammation is our body's immune response to some sort of insult, right? A physical wound, you get a cut, you have inflammation because your body is healing that wound. You get an infection, you have inflammation so that you can sense and destroy that pathogen. You also have inflammation that occurs after exercise because you have micro tears in your muscle fibers. And yes, you have inflammation during digestion, but it's not linked to a specific molecule. It's not linked to gluten. It's not this villain that that people are trying to to make it out to be. And we don't want to avoid inflammation because it's really important for a lot of these processes. No, I couldn't agree more. That was very eloquently stated. And right. So, you know, as an immunologist, you know, somebody says, oh, inflammation, automatically I say, what type of inflammation is it? Type 1 inflammation, type 2 inflammation, what cells are involved What you know, there's different inflammatory cells and responses and and things like that inside the body. Uh, You the other thing to think about too is, you know, how can one specific molecule or protein be the cause of, you know, 120 different ailments? <laughs> it's just, it boggles the mind. It can't do that. How can it be the cause of all these different completely unrelated things? So I think as we, as we see that umbrella grow larger and larger, we all just have to, you know, use our critical thinking skills and question, well, is this, you know, reality or is it more marketing? Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of answered a couple of our herd from the herd questions. You know, Abby asked about, you know, the, the inflammatory claim and things like that. But another one that she asked was was damaging the microbiome. And I really want to dig into this because this is a claim that we hear with regard to everything that's marketed against, you know, artificial sweeteners and GMOs and, you know, conventionally grown produce and things like that. And I think it's really important to understand like the scope of this. So the microbiome is the population of microorganisms that live in and on our body, right? And, and these are are important for normal physiological function. And, you know, in the past several decades, we've understood that there's, it's super complex, but they play a very important role in a lot of things. And and it's very vast. There's about a hundred trillion microorganisms estimated to be in an individual's GI tract. And of those hundred trillion microorganisms, there's about 500 different species of bacteria. And these are all in different proportions. And I want to make it clear that it's really dynamic. These populations are changing and they're adapting, right? And they're considered to be what we call commensal, meaning that they benefit from living in our gut and we benefit from 
from them living in our gut, right? They often help metabolize certain nutrients that we wouldn't be able to digest by ourselves. So they help us extract nutrients. They also help educate our immune system. So, you know, I did a reel recently about the whole immunity debt thing. And I know, Dave, you you were tweeting about it as well. And, you know, you talk about how, how your immune system is always sampling things from your environment to make sure, oh, well, you know, this is a sugar from a bacteria or this is a, a piece of viral RNA. And, and it's educating itself and it's priming itself but it's not making an immune response against all these healthy or these commensal bacteria. And so we see these studies that are coming out that are looking at either mouse studies or rat studies or or even petri dish studies or they're taking like fecal samples from people and they're saying, "Oh, well, you know, we saw some compositional changes in the populations of of gut microbes." And yeah, I mean, maybe you see some changes, but there's 500 different species and there's 100 trillion of them in your gut. You can't make claims about the physiological implications of those changes without understanding the complexity of them. And we're not at a point in science where we can say, oh, yeah, well, we can say, well, this population of bacteroides changed 10% and that means that you're going to develop this sort of medical issue. It, that connection doesn't exist. And so making claims like, oh, well, avoiding gluten or, or eating gluten alters your microbiome, I mean, it might because there might be certain bacteria that are better able to extract nutrients from wheat products. And so they're going to flourish a little bit better in a, an environment that has wheat in it. You know, it's all about adaptation, but it doesn't mean that you have a medical issue as a result. Sorry for my rant, but but Dave, I'm going <laughs> to hand it over to you. I, I like your rant so much. No, I agree. <laughs> yeah, we are, you know, is there something to the microbiome? Probably, um, but we are in the very, very early and rudimentary stages of understanding what this even means, let alone knowing how to manipulate it in a beneficial way for individuals. And to suggest that the entire population at large would benefit by uh, adoption of a specific type of diet is just, it's a slap in the face to the complexity known as human physiology. Uh, as you mentioned, these, you know, the microbiome is this complex ecosystem that lives inside of us. And I read some really interesting uh, things um, a little while ago, I'm sure you did as well. There's some suggestion that perhaps our microbiome biome drives our dietary preferences because of the bacteria that live on us and in us that they may thrive if we eat certain types of foods. And maybe that's why some of us crave certain things, which is a fascinating thing as well. It makes us think about we're all living, you know, our universe is a tiny marble <laughs> on the fingertip of some giant alien out there somewhere, but that's a whole other story. So no, I agree with you. I, you know, for, for folks listening, uh, should you be testing your microbiome with these at-home testing kits? No. Should you be doing anything to change your microbiome based upon whether it's probiotics, prebiotics, uh, you know, medication specific diets, probably not. So there's just, you know, we don't have much evidence to suggest that across the realm. Uh, and as Andrea mentioned, a lot of this stuff is really just done in petri dishes or, or in lab rats. And uh, we can't extrapolate that to the human beings at this time. Okay. So I know we are coming up on time here, but we got another question from the herd. This question came from Nicole and basically she's asking about, you know, wheat from Europe versus the U S and we've heard this so much, right? That folks are saying that the food that's produced in America is worse for you. And I guess there are some claims that European breads and gluten are not causing issues for people, but they do cause an issue in the U.S. So what do you say to that? You know, is 
European food better, safer than what's here in the US, Andrea? <laughs> so I actually, I, I looked into this because I wanted to put some data to it. So, you know, a lot of the claims relate to things like pesticides. And so we've covered that at length in our organic and GMO episodes. So I'll defer people to those episodes. But glyphosate is used at certain concentrations to facilitate wheat ripening here in the US. Glyphosate is one of the safest pesticides as far as acute and chronic toxicity when it comes to human. It has been inundated with misinformation and villainized, kind of like gluten. There's no strong body of evidence to suggest that glyphosate is leading to health issues, certainly not related to autoimmune disorders like celiac disease. But when we actually talk about the wheat, 60% of U.S. wheat is the hard red wheat variety, and 23% consists of soft wheat, whereas in Europe, the majority of wheat produced is the soft wheat variety. So when you compare those two, Hard red wheat does have a higher proportion of protein and as a result, higher proportion of gluten. So hard red wheat contains about 13 to 16% of protein. And if you remember, about 75 to 85% of wheat protein is gluten. Soft wheat is lower. It's about 75 to 9% protein. Um, so it does have less gluten overall. However, Europe imports a lot of American wheat as well. So you can't just say, oh, well, you know, Europe grows lower gluten wheat, therefore you have less gluten, therefore less celiac disease, because also they're importing American wheat and levels of all protein are, are lower in European wheat. But if you actually look at the rates of celiac disease between Europe and America, they're almost identical. It's about 0.7% on the whole. So the TLDR of that is yeah, different countries grow different wheats because they grow better in certain climates. But with importing and exporting wheats, you, you can't necessarily say, well, you know, European breads don't contain any American wheats and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, if you feel better when you eat European bread, as Dave mentioned, it very well could be placebo or nocebo effect. There are no data to suggest that, you know, it's better, safer, or even that there's less celiac disease across the pond. Dave, this was so enlightening. Honestly, both of you, I feel like I just learned so much from both of you. Thank you so much for joining us. I, before Andrea wraps up, are there any final thoughts related to gluten that you'd like to share with listeners? Can I share a quick anecdote and a story Please. with you? Okay. Please. So I'll never forget this. When I was doing my fellowship training uh, and as allergists, we're trained to both treat both adults and children. Now I just treat pediatrics for many reasons. But I was seeing a, a patient and they came in because they were worried that they had um, a gluten allergy. Uh, this is many, many years ago. And as I took the story, the story was, well, every day I get super, super tired in the afternoon. Well, tell me more. What do you normally eat for lunch? Well, I usually have a big bowl of pasta and I have some bread and then I go back to the office and, you know, I dim the lights and I just, I can't stay awake. And it must be because of the gluten that I'm eating. And then that led to a conversation about how that was not concerning whatsoever for any type of allergy or intolerance. But we talked about something called the glycemic index and how there are certain foods that, you know, are really good at sort of causing spikes in blood glucose. And then when you crash, uh, you feel very tired. So I, that story, always stuck with me with that that one patient encounter because we all feel different things you know throughout the day and some of it's because of specific foods that we eat others it, it's more correlation and not causation but it just goes to if you really think that a specific food is causing you know problems with your health please please uh, seek evaluation from a, a proper board certified internist or allergist or gastroenterologist who can you know provide the proper guidance that you need because you may not need to avoid specific foods at all and there may be other reasons for it so I can't thank you 
you enough for having me back on. And this is wonderful. Thanks so much, Dave. We always love having you on. I, I love talking pseudoscience immunology with you. Um, we're really excited. This, this episode's going to go up right after the holiday. So thanks for tuning in, friends. And if you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. We post additional content there. But the biggest perk is that you get a direct line to me and Jess through access to our private Facebook group. We also have my monthly live Q&As and subscription is only $5 a month. So check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. And while you're at it, be sure to follow Dr. Dave Stukas at AllergyKidsDoc. For our next episode, we're going to tackle another controversial topic that we get asked about a lot. I feel like every topic we tackle is controversial. But this one is going to be acupuncture. We will continue to provide updates on COVID, influenza, RSV, all of the science, and many other topics on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. I am a scientist. Yeah, uh, I am a scientist.